Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Good morning, church. How are we this morning? All right. Getting there. Slow morning. We are in a series, uh, the book of Ruth. And so last week is when we kicked this off. And, and what you'll see through this is, is Ruth really is a story of love. It's a story of redemption. It's ultimately a story of Jesus. And, and today what we're kind of moving into um, as, well, let me kind of back up last week. What we really, uh, for good to start, bad had to end. And so we saw kind of the, the migration of Ruth and Naomi leaving Moab, where they moved uh, in order to really find flourishment, but didn't find it there. Uh, what they actually ended up finding was death, when with the death of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and then the death of Malon and Kilion, um, her sons as well. And, and so now they're kind of left without any provision. They're left without any husbands. They're left without any real safety and protection and plan and all of those things. And so what we saw at the end of last week, at the end of chapter 1, was, was having them move back to um, Bethlehem, move back to the house of bread, move back to God's people and God's presence. And so that's where we're going to be picking it up as we jump into uh, our, our, our series here, the book of Ruth. So we're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. Uh, 1 through 13. And so as we dive into this, um, my prayer for us is that we'll be able to see sort of the exemplary um, models and examples of Ruth, and as we are now introduced into uh, kind of the male character in this story, Boaz, as well, and how these are, again, just two beautiful models for us of what it means to be godly. And so we're going to kind of look at that today with Ruth and Boaz. So starting in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And so I want to stop there and, uh, and just kind of give you a, a, a three different points regarding these passages. And so if you're taking notes, they're going to be prayer, providence, um, and prudence. Prayer, providence, and prudence. And the examples that we see here. First, starting off with prayer, we're actually beginning to see the answer of a prayer from Naomi in chapter 1. And so if you saw back in chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, this is what Naomi was praying for Ruth. May the Lord deal kindly with you. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, and that the Lord would grant you uh, that you would be able to find rest. And so we see that in the first chapter. And now as we walk into chapter two, we're starting to see the fact that prayer is both effective. Uh, prayer is uh, encouraging us to also pray because of what God is now doing in answering this prayer. And ultimately, we see that God does answer prayers. And so this prayer that's happening in chapter 1 is now starting to be fulfilled as we then move into chapter 2. Second thing I want you to see here is providence. Uh, God's providence. I love what it says in verse 3 that she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. 
Now, there's something interesting in this because this is kind of um, a, a Hebrew funny, if you will. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek phrasing when it comes to this idea of happen chance. She just happened to come into this field because we know that things don't just happen. Like there is no just luck of the chance here. There is no happenstance. There, this is rather something that God is doing with his providential hand in two different ways. And so what we know historically by looking at the Bible is God has two hands that he primarily uses. He has his uh, proverbial hand, which is very active and very visible. And so this is going to be how God kind of works when it looks like God working in a burning bush where he's speaking to us. We can see it. It's visible. It's happening right there. When he is raising dead people back to life, when he is healing the sick, when he is acting and moving visibly, that is his proverbial hand. That is him visibly moving. What we're seeing here is more of his invisible hand of providence. This is where an angel is not necessarily speaking. This is where a miracle doesn't happen. This is when he is moving through circumstance. He's moving through circumstance because we, again, we don't believe in just circumstance or happenstance or chance. We believe in God's providence. We believe that sometimes God puts us in a place and that's where we're supposed to be. Maybe that's God introducing you to a person that you needed to be introduced to. Maybe that's God bringing you a job that you needed to have. Maybe that's God working through a place in which he's trying to get you to. A lot of times he will work through circumstance in order to bring about his providential hand, his invisible hand. And oftentimes we don't see this activity of God, especially when we're looking through the windshield. When we're looking to the future, we don't see how God is going to work out in this way. Typically, we see this type of providential hand when we're looking in the rear view, when we're looking back over our life and we're looking back and we're thinking, oh, now I can see how God was working. I can see how he introduced me to this person, which then connected me to this. So I can see how I was in this place at the right time, which allowed me to meet this person that I then married or entered into a relationship with. Or I met this person that connected me to this job and were able to see how God is working oftentimes when he's working in the invisible, when he's working based on his providential hand. So again, this is not one of those kind of tongue-in-cheek, oh, lucky for her that she just happened to be in this field. This is God working with his providential hand. This reminds me of, of honestly, how I met Kelsey. I met Kelsey by way of God's providential hand, not by any way of me trying to work and move or even having him just like show up and say, Dwayne, go talk to this girl. Like it wasn't a verbal thing like that. Rather, what had happened was I was trying to set up a mutual friend of ours. We both went to the same college. We're there for four years. One of us graduated with two degrees before the other one finished their first. I'm not going to say which one was which. Um, but uh, we were in the same college at the same time, and we never met while we were in college, even though we had about 30 to 40 mutual friends um, where we should have crossed paths multiple times. But what ended up happening was at the end of our college, uh, I had a friend that was coming back home from American Samoa. He was doing mission work over there for two years, and I wanted to set him up with one of our 30 to 40 mutual friends. Um, and, and so her name was Shelly, and so I said, Shelly, I got a great guy who's coming back in town. Would love for you to meet him, so I'm just playing matchmaker. I'm going to get you all together. Well, Shelly and Ben didn't want to go on a blind date by themselves. And so at this time, Shelly's like, you know, I think I'm just going to bring someone. Why don't you also come and support? And, uh, and then that way it's not, you know, just an awkward blind date. This, again, this is back before dating apps and all those things. It's just your friends. Are, this is not like Hinge where it like matches you up based on mutual. This is just 
taking my word for it. I think it's a great fit. It was not a great fit. But anyways, what ultimately was happening was God was working his uh, providential hand in the situation where, where I thought I was setting up a blind date for Shelly and Ben. He was setting up a blind date for me and Kelsey. We were the support coming into this. So much so that I even told my friend, um, hey, I, I just got out of some stuff that, that, you know, I'm not really ready to dive into a relationship. And so what I typically go for are like brunettes, southern belles, soft personalities. So if you find a blonde that has a strong personality that'd be willing to kick me to the curb at any moment, I'm not attracted to that. So if you can find that, that would be great. And then that way I know that in the moment we'll just be there totally supporting you. Again, God's providential hand, knowing that that's what I needed. And yes, I was actually attracted to it as well. All right, this is just like one of those relationships. I do love her and am attracted to her. And so anyways, uh, in his providential hand, six months after we meet on that blind date that God set up, even though I thought I was controlling it, we're engaged. And then eight months after that, we're married and we'll be celebrating 10 years this fall with three beautiful sons, and we're just rocking and rolling. But again, looking back, God was doing all of that, all right? God was doing all of that. I was trying to not do all of that, but he was doing all of that. That's what we see working out here is that she has this active faith that is happening where she's not just giving it up to happenstance or chance or circumstance. She knows, as what she just said, I'm going to go and find favor, I'm after God's favor, and I'm not just going to wait for that favor to happen. I'm going to go out and seek it, and you'll see that here in a moment. So these two women, Naomi and Ruth, they show up in Bethlehem, and they're at the equivalent of what we really see is just kind of like a food bank. All right, That's just kind of where they're at in their situation. Ruth is at the food bank, and it just so happens that the food bank is run by a guy who is somehow a distant relative of her dead husband. Meaning that he might actually have some sort of legal obligation to tend to her and care for her and provide for her. And out of all of the food banks that she could have ended up at, she ended up at the right one at the right time with the right guy. Lucky for her, right? God's providence. Third thing I want you to see here is prudence. Prudence, where Ruth is a model for young women. I want you to see Ruth as just the exemplary woman that she is, the lovely lady that she is. And I want to show you why, because it's easy to miss if you just kind of speed through a passage like this, but it's in there if you dig a little bit deeper. What statistically happens in our culture when you get into your 20s, if you've been raised in the church, what you typically do, statistically, again, is you'll leave the church when you get into your 20s. You'll leave the church, uh, whether you're going off to college, graduating college, you're just kind of making your decisions on your own, you're kind of coming into your own self, you'll leave the church, and then typically what you'll do is as you start dating, you'll start dating, you'll enter into a relationship with someone, once you enter into a relationship with someone, you might enter into cohabitation with them, living together before you're married, and it just, it just continues kind of walking down that path, and then you'll never end up back in church again, and then can lead to all kinds of complications within a relationship. That's what statistically is happening right now in our culture. And also, again, in the history of America, we are right now in culture, the first time that this has ever happened, where to be married is the minority. To be married is the minority. So again, this is statistically what the growing population and culture is, driving, is diving into is not marital committed relationships, but rather a different thing. And, and, and here's the reality, too, is it's become normal. 
This is what, like, that's just normal what you do. When you leave your family, you leave whatever it is that they believe. And then you dive into whatever it is that you discover. And then once you discover that, you just begin living your own life that way. And unfortunately, we again think that that's a good model. Not maybe Christian-wise, not our church, not, 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 not us. We think that's a good model, but our culture thinks that's a good model. And what I want to show you here in Scripture, and I want to just continue to do this as we walk through Scripture, is show you a different way. Show you a different way. Ruth provides for us an alternative way to this sort of idea. She provides us a different way as a great example. Again, she's widowed. She has no children. She's from the wrong people group. She comes from a people group that's, again, descended from Lot. Their whole family line comes from incest between a father and a daughter. So this is that side of the family. This is kind of that side of the family that you don't want to talk to, that you don't want to go to reunions with. You, you, you kind of want to avoid them when you get around Christmas. Like you're, you're just not hanging out with them. Again, it comes from the wrong religion as well, worshiping the god Chemosh. Like at the end of the day, she does not have a lot going for her, right? She does not have a lot going for her. She, she's kind of in, in, in just a, a tough situation. And so when you kind of start comparing yourself to Ruth's circumstances, what I hope is you, you don't feel so bad about yourself anymore, right? <laughs> like you're able to maybe look at your circumstances and just think, okay, it's not that bad. It's not that bad, given what's her situation. And specifically her situation in her context and culture. The odds of this kind of woman walking in holiness are low because the circumstances are so difficult. And so the temptation for her would be a temptation to just give herself over to ungodliness. The temptation for her is the same temptation that we see the woman at the well gave herself over to before she met Jesus. You're sleeping around. You're doing what the culture is telling you to do. You're doing the things that our culture believes today is okay. You're trying to find provision. You're trying to find care. You're trying to find safety. You're, you're trying to find those things. It's just you're finding them in the wrong things. Finding them in the wrong things. So here's a couple of things about this, this woman. She's holy. She's holy. She's not sleeping around. She's not moved in with a guy. She's not doing anything unholy. She's doing that which is godly. Number two, she's a good friend. She's only really got one friend at this point. It's Naomi. And Naomi's not that great of a friend, right? I mean, we remember when Naomi got to Bethlehem, she had her name legally changed from pleasant and sweet to bitter. All right. She went from Naomi to Mara. She's not that great of a friend. So despite how Naomi's handling her hardship, Ruth is a good friend by committing herself to her and pursuing Naomi in relationship. Number three, she works really hard. And you're going to see that here in a moment. Number four, she has faith. And she has an active faith. It's not a passive faith where she just sits around and says, Lord, please provide for me. She has an active faith. I love what she says here in verse two. I shall find favor. That's faith. I shall find favor. Unfortunately, what I see too often, and I think this again is, is kind of my generation and down, um, is, is we just wait for things to happen for us. We wait like, well, I really wish I, I, you know, could just find a spouse. And then you go back to playing video games. Probably not going to find them there. 
And I really wish I could just, you know, get a really good job. But yet, I don't throw out any applications. I don't, you know, network around. I don't go and ask people. I don't try to improve my skill set. I don't try to do those things. We just wait for things to happen for us. And for her, she trusts that God has a future. She trusts that God has a plan. She trusts that God is hope. And she trusts that God has an opportunity for her. And she's not going to sit around and wait for it. I shall find favor. I know God is for me. He is not going to forsake me. I know that God has favor for me, and I'm going to go get his favor. I'm going to go find it. Love that about her. Here's something else I want you to see about her faith and how it has shaped her. Most people tend to view life in two categories, good seasons and bad seasons. We try to extend the good seasons, right? We try to kind of get as much out of those good seasons as possible. And then when bad seasons come, we try to just kind of bear it, endure it, and like, you know, make it as short as possible so that we can get back to the good seasons. That's just kind of how we, how we live our lives. And I remember having a mentor one time tell me that he kind of likes to try to view life a little bit differently. He tries to view life like a train track where you got on one side, good season, and on the other side, bad season. And we're just on the train of life going through it. To where literally a good season might be you had a good morning and then afternoon you have a bad season where it's a bad afternoon. Because again, those are all circumstantial. Good seasons, bad seasons are circumstantial. And they should not dictate how you live your life based on your godliness and how you're trusting in the Lord and how you're pursuing the Lord. Circumstances should not dictate those things. They should not dictate your holiness. And unfortunately, I think we land too much in the trying to pursue God in the good seasons when it comes to abiding in him and knowing him and trusting him and putting hope in him. And when it comes to the bad seasons, we just kind of land on the genie in a bottle side. God, we're in the bad season. I really need you to do this right now. I really don't like this situation that I'm walking through. But we don't realize that he's using both good and bad in order to sanctify us and move us along to become more like his son, Jesus. We need to see it that way. And here's what I love about Ruth is she's not giving herself over to either one. She's not trying to be more of the optimistic side and just focus on the good seasons. And at the same time, she's not giving herself over to the bad season of just the pessimism of looking at her situation and just woe is me. And and constantly nothing will go my way. I mean, I'm literally a widowed, possibly barren, no children um, type of person that 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 also the only friend I have is just a bitter elderly woman like she's she's not looking at that she's not looking at the fact that her background is coming with a lot of baggage for the fact that she is from Moab and so she could give herself over to that but instead she's a realist she's a realist she's looking at her situation and she's now looking at her context and as being around God's people and God's presence and knowing that what God has provided for them is favor, grace and faith. She says, "I want some of that." And I'm going to go for it and I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. It's one of the things I love about Ruth. Here's what Ruth is saying. Things are hard. But God is good. He's not forsaken me. He will not fail me. He will favor me. She knows that God will provide for her. There's provision out there. And then we meet the guy that God uses to bring this about. Let's start in verse 4. 
And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, I just love that, that, that name. I feel like we should change our softball team name to the reapers. Um, but <laughs> the reapers, and literally reapers just means the guys who work for Boaz. Like it's just his, his men and his company. The reaper, it sounds way cooler than it is. So he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Now, again, this is just kind of like Boaz, the, the, the businessman, leader of this company, walking in, meeting his employees. And he just kind of starts it like how, how many of you open up a Zoom meeting right now with just praise and worship? Probably not a lot of you, right? But that's the way that he's running his company is he's starting it off with the Lord be with you. And their response is the Lord bless you. I love that. More of that to come here in a minute. Here's one of the things I want to say about that is you can always tell the character of a person by the culture cultivated around them. You can always tell the character of a person by the culture that's cultivated around them. Here, Boaz has cultivated a culture of the Lord's presence and the Lord's blessing, even within his own company. Number five, or verse five. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Boaz has noticed that Ruth is alone, and he's asking, who's responsible for her? Who's caring for her? Verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Sadly, sadly, Ruth is still viewed as the Moabite woman. Wrong people, wrong nation, wrong religion. And I just wonder, this is food for thought. Even in the midst of a culture that in one breath can say the Lord be with you and the Lord bless you can simultaneously be unwelcoming and uninviting for those who come from a different background. Different belief, different culture. And so when someone who is essentially non-Christian, non-white, non-millennial, non-you. When they come into our church, what's the first impression that they would perceive about us? What's the first impression that they would perceive about us? Is it the Lord bless you and the Lord be with you? Or would it be who's that person of color? Who's that person who talks differently than us? Who's that person that thinks differently than us? One of the reasons why we have a hospitality ministry is so that we are inclusive and so that we are inviting of what represents the Imago Dei in the kingdom of God. Represents the Imago Dei in the kingdom of God. Because I hate to burst your bubble, but... Uh, in the kingdom of God, in the Imago Day, the description I gave of us being white and privileged and whatnot is minority. It's minority. Honestly, like Caucasians didn't even come into the mix until the end of Acts. When the Bible or when the gospel finally got to Europe. We just have to get to this place where we understand fundamentally, fundamentally, that the gospel is diverse. The gospel is diverse. If we only view it through our westernized culture and through our eyes and our skin color, we are never going to change. We're never going to change. We're going to be the white church that you see right now. And what this is going to take is this is going to take us actively putting what our mind and our beliefs say, the Lord be with you and the Lord bless you, with our actions and our feelings of what might be uncomfortable and what might be different. 
what might be culturally uh, different than what we are, what we represent. We have to get to a place where we see that God's kingdom in the Imago Day is not just for white. That was free. I just wanted to throw that one in there for a minute. <laughs> they still see her as the woman from Moab, and that needs to change. And I pray we make those changes in the coming months and years, Lord willing. Verse 7. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So let me explain what she's doing here. Let me explain gleaning. Gleaning was a provision that God had in the Old Testament, particularly in places like Leviticus, for the poor. All right? Gleaning is a process of, of creating provision from your companies in order to provide means that were necessary for the poor to be able to live and to flourish. So God has a heart for the poor. God loves the poor, and God's people are to be generous towards the poor. But rather than just giving them money or provision, they also worked for it. Like It literally says like she was a hard worker. This was the point three back early on. She was a hard worker, so she would come in. She wasn't just sitting on the side waiting for a handout. She was coming in to work the margins in order to be able to, 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 to live and to eat and to get food and that was necessary for her. And so if you were poor and struggling to put food on the table, what God would do is he would actually command his people to take their business and set aside a percentage of their profits for you to literally eat into their profits. This is what God would set up for his people. So... In this context, the margins were for the marginalized. That's how God set this up. The margins were for the marginalized. What Ruth knows is, okay, God has a heart for people like me in my situation. And God's people make provision for people like me. So if I can find one of God's people, then I'll find God's provision. Again, her going after the favor of God. Let me go and find it. She knows God's people are this way. She knows that God's people are generous. They're generous. So I just need to find them and they will help provide for me. And so in the Old Testament, God's people would literally give 10% tithe. Tithe means a tenth. They would give 10% of their earnings to the priesthood and to the ministry. That would be equivalent to like us giving our tithes to the church budget in order to go towards mission and ministry, the advancement of the gospel. That's what they would do in the Old Testament, give a tenth of their tithe to the priesthood and to the ministry. In addition to that, they would then also uh, provide for feasts, festivals, and celebrations. Feasts, festivals, and celebrations. That's in addition to their tithes. And then in addition to that, what they would then do is create within their budget, especially within their companies, they would create profit margins that would be able to go for the marginalized. They would be able to serve the poor. They would be able to go out and make sure that they were provided for. And so at the end of the day, what this really comes down to is, is somewhere in the ballpark of about 25% of their income was them being generous. Them being generous. That's how God's people operated in the Old Testament. And so it's interesting today, whenever we have people come, kind of come to us and be like, man, don't you think 10, like, like, like tithing 10% is high? I said, honestly, in the Old Testament, like it was uh, the floor, not the ceiling. All right. They tithe way more than that. But it's because they saw the generosity of God's heart and they wanted to match it. 
They saw that God was a giver and that God would bless and that God was generous. And so they wanted to position themselves to free themselves up from needing things so that they could then provide for those who were in need. And that's just the way that they worked it out. And literally every aspect of their life revolved around this, whether they were giving to ministry efforts or they were giving to feasts and parties and celebrations that were, again, revolving around ministry. And then also, again, taking the initiative of really what the local outreach was, was us not working that into the budget of the church, but actually just doing it above and beyond within our own budgets to figure out how we can provide for those who are around us. Because at the end of the day right now, I can tell you this right now, our local outreach budget is about $1,200 to $2,000. That's not going to go a long way for our community around us. But out of your own budgets, if you were to set aside 5%, 10%, and you wanted to work that into blessing the poor and the marginalized around you who have needs, that's going to go way more than the twelve two $2,000 that we have in our own budget right now. Just something to think about. Food for thought. This is what they would do. So let's talk briefly about Boaz. I want you to, I want especially the men in here to see Boaz as a good example of a godly man. And I know, again, the Bible is full of sinners who make poor choices and bad decisions, but sometimes there are men and women who love the Lord and are exemplary. And this is, again, why I love this story is because it provides for us two beautiful examples, one of Ruth and one of Boaz, that are great examples for the men and women in this room, particularly uh, the young men and women in this room, and particularly the single men and women in this room. What we see with Boaz And what we've seen so far in the book regarding the men in this book, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion, they are not strong men. They are not strong men. And when I say strong, I'm not referring to just physical strongness. Elimelech, Malon, Kilion, failures. Failures. So it's finally able for us to now see a strong man. And the reason why I'm using the the term strong man is because Boaz literally just means strong man. All right. So as you're driving around Indy and you see Boaz construction, just let it be a reminder of you. Let me think about Boaz. I know some of y'all know Boaz construction. You see it. There's cars everywhere. Just let it be a reminder. Oh, I need to be more like Boaz. I I need to orient my life like him. Back in verse 1, we see that it refers to him as a worthy man. And doing some biblical and contextual referencing, there are usually three types of characteristics attached to this kind of worthy man. It refers to him as a person of wealth, a person of war, and a person of wherewithal. Person of wealth, person of war, person of wherewithal. When it comes to wealth, simply put, Boaz knows how to make money. It's not wrong to make money. It's good to make money when you, again, are using it from the perspective of God's heart. I'm using it. It's a tool that I'm using in order to not only provide for my family, but also create enough money to be able to provide for those around me and to be able to be generous and to be able to give. So he's a person who knows how to make money. I'll say this in regards to generosity. Because I know some of you right now, man, you're talking a lot about money and it gets uncomfortable. The level to which you give to the advancement of the gospel 
that is the church, and the level to which you give to those in your domains of life, it reveals the maturity of your faith and understanding of God's generosity towards you. The level to which we give to God's ministry and to God's community and to the people around us, it reveals the faith to which we understand God's generosity towards us. So if you have a low view of generosity, then you have a low view of God. Plain and simple, plain and simple. So my encouragement for you in that is to just seek out the generosity of God. And let it transform you. See how he has been generous towards you. And see how that changes you. Second, he's a person of war. When conflict or harm comes, when innocent people are in danger, he's the kind of guy that gets in the way and takes the bullet. Jesus did this. Jesus is this kind of man. Again, not a man who's going to live by the sword. Not that kind of war. But one who's going to stand up for the vulnerable. Stand up for the sick. Stand up for those who, again, do not have the ability to protect and take care of themselves. We do not have the ability to protect and take care of ourselves when dealing with our sin. Jesus came and stepped in our place. He's that kind of man. Boaz is that kind of man who steps in and helps those who are vulnerable. Third, he is a person of wherewithal. You just simply get stuff done. And you'll see this more as the book kind of progresses, uh, where there's actually going to be a lot of complications that come into the mix of him being with Ruth and dealing with Naomi. And so we're going to see that a little bit more as it comes on. But he is just a guy who gets things done, uh, if, whether it's dealing with money or dealing with budget or dealing with circumstances. Again, he will figure it out and he will get things done. And as I said, because Boaz is a godly man, you actually see something happening in this field that is similar to what happens at the end of ceremonies, um, which would be like the equivalent of church services in the Old Testament. At the end of those, like, for example, in Numbers 6, 24, you'll see them at the end of a service say, the Lord be with you or, the, or, or may you have peace. And then the congregation or the people will respond with the Lord be with you or peace to you as well. And that is the culture that he's cultivating within his own company because he's a godly man. Not just because it was a great idea, but because he's a godly man. And he wants to cultivate that among him. Again, one of the things I think here is um, this is a godly man doing ministry in the marketplace. This is not him trying to become a pastor. This is not him because what we don't need more of is broke pastors who don't know how to make business deals. That's not what we need more of. What we need more of is godly business, um, business people who are able to cultivate uh, ministry within the marketplace. And they're able to serve out and love one another the way that God has served them and loved them. That's what we need more of. It reminds me of a story back in the 16th century when a guy came up to Martin Luther after his conversion. And he came to Martin Luther. He said, man, I'm so excited about my, my conversion to Christ that I, uh, I want to know what to do with my life. Like, how, what do I do? Do I go into vocational ministry? And Martin Luther responded to him and said, what is, what is it that you do? And the guy said, I'm a shoemaker. And he responded to him, well, then make a great shoe and sell it at a fair price. Go be on your way. <laughs> what he was saying to him was, you don't need to go to seminary now because you become a Christian and become a pastor as if that's what the good Christians do. 
What he's saying was, fulfill your ministry where you are, what you're doing. Be a pastor in your context, essentially. That's what he's calling here, and that's what he's doing. If you're in leadership in any type of position, whether in your, in your workplace, you might be the only pastor that your coworkers ever meet. You might be the only Christian that they ever meet. It's an opportunity for you to minister in the marketplace like what Boaz is doing here with his guys. All right, let's pick it up in verse 8, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fly through this, this part. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep those or keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor? Remember what she was after? I shall go and find favor. And here she's saying, I have found favor. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. The last thing that I want to see, that I want you to see here, and again, this goes for both men and women. Some of you have had some very painful relationships because you've entrusted yourself to people who are not safe. Who just aren't safe. Boaz right here is representing for us an example of what it means to be a safe person in relationship with. Again, he's not after personal gain. He's he's right now not viewing her as an option to marry yet. He's viewing her as a daughter of God. And so a couple of points that I want to see, and I'm, again, I'm going to fly through these, but I want you to see these. Number one, safe people see each other through God's eyes. He sees Ruth as God sees Ruth, my daughter, my daughter. And he doesn't see her as a woman from Moab. You see, he referred to her differently than how his company or his coworkers referred to her. Because he's seeing her through God's eyes. We need to start seeing people through God's eyes before we make a judgment or engage them in a specific way that's going to make us look like dummies. Safe people see each other through God's eyes. Number two, safe people protect each other, each other from, with God's care. What he's telling her is, hey, um, there's a way in which I operate my company and, and how I manage my fields. That's going to be safe for you. Don't go to another field. Don't go to that field because they they do things differently. I want you to be safe. And so I want you to stay in this field. And I want you to be protected. Safe people protect each other with God's care. Number three, safe people introduce us to other safe people. 
He's introducing her to the, the, the women who are working in his company as well. He, he wants her to have a community around her of other exemplary women who can also pour into her, encourage her, pray for her, all of those things. He's, he's giving her, not only uh, she's found God's presence, but he's providing for her God's people as well. He's giving that to her. Safe people introduce us to other safe people. Safe people have, number four, safe people have good boundaries. Again, he's charged his men not to touch her. And not only that, but he's not doing it. He's providing for her safe boundaries. Hey, it might be tempting for you just to jump in a relationship with a guy here. But I've charged my men not to do that. I've charged my, and that's not him trying to protect her as an option. He's just saying, I'm charging them not to engage you, not to touch you, not to, to, to offer any sort of temptation for you. We want there to be healthy boundaries for you to build relationship here before it ever progresses to anything further. Safe people have good boundaries. Number five, safe people are generous. When you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink as much as you want. And again, here, I know I keep hitting generosity. Um, again, my goal is not in generosity for you just to get the money out of your pocket. We're just trying to get the idol out of your heart when it comes to money, when it comes to generosity. That might hurt, and that's okay. Number six, safe people encourage character. And he prays for her because he's heard of her story. That's one of the things I love about this shift in perspective of who she is, is he's not saying, hey, I know you're widowed, I know you're barren, I know you uh, have no children, I know that you come from worshiping a demon god, Chemosh, I know that you, you, you've come, like he's not saying that, but rather what he is doing is reiterating to her, her commitment of what she's gone through, as well as who she's committed to with Naomi, and the pledge for her to move to Bethlehem and be under God's presence and God's people, he's just encouraging that. He's stirring up within her, her character that she is finding in the Lord. And that's something that we need to each do for one another. Hey, I'm seeing Jesus in your life right here. And I just want to keep encouraging that. Keep loving, keep serving, keep being selfless. It's amazing. I just, I just I want you to know that I see Jesus in you. When you do this or when you've done that or, or your commitment to him. Safe people encourage character. Number seven, safe people pray for you to flourish. He prays for, for, for God to give her a full reward by the Lord. And he's also, here's an interesting thing with that. Not only is he praying for God to provide for her a full reward, he's also the one then answering his own prayer. God grant her a full reward. As you grant her a full reward, I'm going to provide for her everything that she needs. I'm going to provide for everything that she needs. This kind of puts down that idea of when you're in a conversation with someone and they're bearing their soul and they're bearing their needs. And we as Christians say, I'm going to pray for you. I'm just going to pray for you right now. And then we walk away thinking, man, I, I could probably help. But we don't. This is Boaz is an example where it's don't just pray that God provides. Provide. Because maybe the way he provides is through you. So think about that. As we pray for others, do we have the means to answer that prayer? And is God using us? Again, invisible, providential hand. He uses those circumstances. He uses you when you don't think he's using you. Safe people pray for you to flourish. 
Number eight, safe people comfort us. Ruth says Boaz has comforted her. I don't see anyone in this book who has comforted her yet. But Boaz is comforting her in this time. Number nine, safe people point us to God as our safe place. Again, he's not taking credit for what he's providing. He's saying she's found refuge under God's wings. She's found refuge under God's wings. He's not pointing her to himself. He's pointing her to God. Take refuge with him. And that's what safe people do is we keep pointing one another to Jesus. We point to Jesus. You're struggling right now? Go to Jesus. You don't know how to read the Bible? Let's start with Jesus. Go to Jesus. Talk to him right now. I don't know what to pray. Just pray. The Holy Spirit intervenes and works your prayers out as they're heading up to heaven anyways. So just start praying. Go to Jesus. We need to point each other to Jesus way more than we do right now. Because what we tend to do right now is on those tracks and we're in the bad circumstances and we're just burying our souls in the bad circumstances. What do we do right now? Man, that's tough. That's hard. I'm sorry. Those are good things to say. But how are you abiding in Christ as you're walking through this tough circumstance? Where's Jesus? Have you seen him yet? Have you talked to him? Have you spent time with him? I'm telling you, like right now, my advice that I'm going to give you is going to be not nearly good enough for what Jesus is going to provide for you. You need to go to Jesus with this circumstance, with this situation. That's why it begins with prayer. We need to go to Christ regardless. And then even when it's in the good seasons, man, things are going good. Things are going awesome right now. We're really excited about life. What do we respond with? That's awesome, man. I'm glad things are working out for you. That's, that's great. It's great. Are you praising Jesus? <laughs> like you need to still get to Jesus because what's going great in your life needs to roll past your current circumstance and situation. And it needs to end with him getting the glory and the credit. Again, with him here, he's praising and worshiping God by pointing her to Jesus as the great wing and protector and and salvation for her. Rather than him just being able to say, you know what, man, the Lord's been good to me, so I've got some extra margins. I'm going to help provide this for you. And so make sure you tell other people that I'm providing this for you and make sure when I go down and drink that that water's got my name on it. Like he's not doing that. He's not taking credit for God's wing and his refuge and his protection. We need to point one another to Jesus. I'm telling you, we will be way more satisfied, happy, holy people when we point each other to Jesus in both bad and good. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. And so these are two remarkable people. And as we see in the coming chapters, these two people are going to get to know each other. And they're going to get to know each other quite well. And it's going to end in a beautiful, beautiful story that not only brings these two together, and I'm going to get into some unique categories uh, because right now it, it's kind of easy to look at this. And I've seen guys preach it this way. as kind of like a, um, uh, gosh, I forgot the movie, uh, Pretty Woman. This is not a Pretty Woman situation. All right? Ruth is not a prostitute. 
Okay? It's just we, type, we, we try to put it in those categories because she's poor and he's rich. But that is not the categories that the Bible uses. The Bible uses categories where there's righteous rich and there's righteous poor. And there's unrighteous rich and there's unrighteous poor. We're going to see how he works that out so that hopefully it begins to even shift our perspective of our worldviews when it comes to political realm, when it comes to how we relate with others on socioeconomic spectrums, and how we begin to pull away our judgment. So we'll see that in the coming weeks as these two uh, begin to unite together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful love story that we're seeing in this book. And this is not just some uh, unique one-off love story. This is a love story that is rooted in the advancement of the gospel and the foundation of the gospel. As we know, Ruth is one of the great, great, great grandmothers of Jesus himself. And so, Father, we thank you for what we're seeing in these two exemplary people. We're seeing the active faith of Ruth, and we're seeing the fact that, that there's prayer involved. We see that there is providence involved and we see that there's prudence involved, that this is a story in which she can be a model for every single one of us in this room. That not only do we trust you to provide for us, but we're going to actively pursue your providence. And in the meantime of pursuing it, that there's a way for us to be holy, holy and not give ourselves over to temptation but give ourselves over to godliness. And we thank you for this example in Boaz as well, where this is a man who has found himself in a context of wealth, but yet he does not see himself pridefully, but rather sees himself as, I have an opportunity to be generous and gracious to others and cultivate godliness within a company as well as godliness in his relationships as he seeks to be a safe place to provide protection and care and provision. So, Father, I pray again for each one of us in this room that we would see this as a model of Jesus himself and that we would not have a passive faith waiting for it to happen, but that we would pursue it in our own sanctification and holiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to... Thank you for listening to a sermon from The District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at